0: If you have your Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel. And this morning we'll be in chapter 14. Uh, Before we begin, I want to say just a word about this book. Uh, It's a leather-bound book, the one I have in my hand, and yours may be similar. Or you may have one on your phone or on a tablet. But this is God's Word. And according to the book of Psalms, this is more valuable to us than gold, and it is sweeter than honey dripping from a comb. Now in this book, God helps us, God guides us, God gives us information we need to have better marriages, more godly children. Uh, to overcome depression and anxiety with the fruit of the spirit of joy and peace. God gives us instructions, but this book is not just pro tips for living. This is primarily a book about Jesus. And that's what we need to remember on a morning like this. We're going to search out God's Word this morning and we're going to learn some of this guidance, some of this information for how to deal with some of life's problems and to do so in a way that pleases the Lord and will bring joy to our lives. But what we need most is not just a lesson for better living. What we really need is Jesus. So in the midst of our studying scripture for these life principles, let's not forget that the real answer in God's word is Jesus. That Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. He has died on the cross and rose from the grave so that we can be right with the Father and so that we can know the forgiveness and the perpetual cleansing that only comes from him. Well, our focus this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 14. There are two or three things that can seep into your life that can get under our skin just a little bit and can ruin our lives. There are two or three toxins that can destroy character, relationships, and dreams. There are two or three bullets that can kill your marriage and destroy your parenting effectiveness. And those those bullets, I believe, are lust, greed, and anger. And it just takes a little of one of those to put us on a course for destruction. Now, we don't have time today to talk about all three, but I want us to look in 2 Samuel 13 and read about three men who all succumbed to the same bullet, to the same poison. I want us to see three men whose lives were wrecked by anger, by anger. Now, we're getting very close to the end of our series where we've been focusing on a royal mess, life lessons from flawed leaders, and we're just going to perhaps have a couple more messages if the Lord allows But I want you to see today how, as we approach the end, that this matter of anger becomes one of the most important themes in David's life and the lives of his his children. I want us to see how anger, though it can be a good thing, can be one of the most destructive forces in our lives. So we're just going to begin 2 Samuel 13. I want to work our way through almost the entire chapter, so we'll skip around a little bit. But beginning in verse 1, the scripture says, Some time past, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and David's son Amnon was infuriated, I'm sorry, infatuated uh, with her. Uh, Amnon and Tamar, they were what we would call today half sisters. Uh, Amnon then comes up with a plan, uh, some, uh, some deceit and some subterfuge where he can get Tamar to come to his room. He pretends to be sick and she's going to take care of him, uh, but he has ulterior motives. Skip down to verse 7. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Uh, David didn't know what was afoot, but he was involved in this. He was tricked by Amnon as well as everyone else. Uh, There are, you'll notice as we go through this, uh, several parallels between what happens here in 2 Samuel 13, We're going to see the sins of some of the children of David. And you're going to see some parallels between the sins in the lives of the children and the sins in David's life that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, 2 Samuel 11. Now let's continue to read uh, verse eight. Then Tamar went to his house while Amnon was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his presence and baked them. She brought the pan and set it down in front of him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, everyone leave me. And everyone left. Bring me the meal to my bedroom, Amnon told Tamar, so I can eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes that she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. And when she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, my sister. And so Amnon is attempting to do Uh, The unthinkable. Uh, Verse 12, don't, my brother, she cried, don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't commit this outrage. And so Tamar seeks to resist what her half-brother Amnon is doing. Now to protect younger ears, we won't read the next few verses, but I'll tell you that Amnon overpowers Tamar and commits a heinous sin. Now, if you look down to verse 15, and then a few verses following, it says, so Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love that he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said. And so he loved her, uh, to use his word, but now he hates her after this act is over. If you look down to verse 17, instead he called Uh, the servant who waited on him, get this away from me. Throw her out and bolt the door behind her. He couldn't even call her by name. And then Amnon's servant threw her out, bolted the door behind her. Now here we see the first uh, picture of anger in this chapter. After this heinous sin, uh, Amnon was overwhelmed with anger and he expressed it in this irrational hatred of Tamar. Now it's interesting that Jesus, if we go to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Jesus connects hatred and anger and says that they're just two different expressions of the same emotion and we see that here. Now Tamar then flees and runs to her full brother Absalom, and shares with him what has happened. Verse 20, her brother Absalom said to her, has your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. And so Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. So he gets the information. He doesn't act now, but he begins to formulate a plan, Absalom does, that we'll see Uh, Carried out in a few verses, but notice verse 21 Very important says when King David heard about all these things. He was furious So David gets the word of what Amnon has done to Tamar and David is furious about it now you have to remember That all of these people are children of David Amnon's a child of David Tamar is a child of David Absalom is a child of David Now David is angry and should be angry, right? But what does David do with his anger? Does David go to Tamar and seek to comfort her and console her after this terrible experience that she's been through? No. Does David have Amnon arrested and punished for what he has done to his sister? No. Does David at least have a talk with Amnon about what he has done and how he should repent? No. Does David have a talk with Absalom or the other children about what has happened and what they should do next? No. What does David do with his anger? He does nothing. It was a hollow and a meaningless anger. Now let's continue to read verse 22, Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. So now we see the third picture of anger. Uh, We've seen that Amnon is angry. Uh, It's hard to understand why, but he is, and it's expressed in hatred. We see that David is angry, but his anger, anger has no action to it. Now Absalom is angry, angry. Begins to plot revenge against Amnon. Uh, It's important, I think, perhaps to note here that the next person in line to be the king, the oldest son at this point, was Amnon. Uh, Then there was someone named Daniel. He had a couple of different names, and we don't really know what happened to him. So he must not have been a major figure. And then the next one would have been Absalom, Absalom. So let's look at verse 28 and the beginning of verse 29. Now, Absalom commanded his young men, watch Amnon until he is in a good mood from the wine. And when I order you to strike Amnon, then kill him. This sounds a whole lot like the things that David was doing in chapter 11. Look at verse 29. So Absalom's young men did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. And so... Though it was not Absalom's responsibility, he didn't have the right, he didn't have the authority, he has Amnon killed. Now skip down to verse 38. After Absalom had fled to Geshur and had been there three years, King David longed to go to Absalom for David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. So Absalom had to flee to another country, why? Because he's guilty of murder. Even though Amnon had done something terrible, it was not uh, Absalom's responsibility to punish him and it certainly wasn't his responsibility to murder him. So Absalom now is a murderer and he has had to flee the country. Uh, Meanwhile, David still hasn't said anything either to to Tamar, Uh, or to Absalom. Now, there's a little bonus truth here that I want to say. I'd love to spend more time talking about it, but let me just say it and let it uh, perhaps have an impact. It's a special word for fathers. There is nothing more painful in life. Perhaps there is nothing more painful in life than seeing your sin or a shadow of your sin, or an exaggeration of your sin, or a perversion of your sin. There's nothing more painful than to see your sin in the lives of your children. David saw that here, and perhaps that's one of the reasons he never really responded to this terrible crime. Now, that's the story. Let's read one more verse. Let's skip all the way down to chapter 14. Middle of that chapter, verse 24. I think this is important. It says, however, the king added he may return. He's speaking of Absalom. Absalom has been gone for a while now. He says he he may return to his his house, but he may not see my face. And so Absalom returned to his house, but he did not see the king. So even at that late point, there had been No communication between uh, David and Absalom. Now, let's step back and let's look at these three angry men. David is angry. Amnon is angry. Absalom is angry. And we can learn something about anger just by looking at these three men. So let's start with David. David had an anger that became a substitute for action. Anger can become a substitute for action. Look back at chapter 13, verse 21. When King David heard about these things, he was furious. He was furious, he was angry, but his anger didn't lead to any appropriate or responsible action. It seems as if his anger satisfied him instead of propelled him. Does that make sense? See, your anger can propel you, it can point you in a direction, it can push you to do something or anger can just be an end of itself and anger can be the satisfaction that keeps us from doing the things that we need to do. Anger can be a catalyst for action or it can become a substitute for action. If we could have observed David's anger in verse 21, I wonder what it would have looked like. Uh, perhaps he was ranting and raving about what uh, Amnon had done. Maybe he was hollering or cursing, throwing things, hitting things, kicking things. You know, people do all kinds of things when they're angry that don't actually accomplish anything. And it seems that David did these things. The Bible says he was furious. But those emotions never led to actions. Uh, why do people... Why do we do that when we're angry? Why do we lose our temper and we jettison our calm demeanor when we're angry? Uh, We act out and we act up just as a substitute for stepping up and doing something. You know, the Bible talks about this in uh, multiple ways. It says, uh, rend your hearts and not your garments. You know what that means? Oftentimes when they would feel guilt over their sin. They would rip their clothes as a sign of their uh, repentance. But they didn't actually ever change. It was just an outward thing. And that became a substitute for what should have been happening on the inside. That's why the Bible says, God says through the prophet Amos, that don't rend your garments, rend your hearts. So many times the expression of our emotions can become a substitute for the real action. And that was the case with David. So it seems the problem with David is that his anger, his expression of his anger became a substitute for action. Now, what was the result of that? Well, it likely hurt Tamar greatly that her father didn't come to her. Uh, It exacerbated Absalom's anger. So for two years, Absalom is watching his dad not do anything to defend his daughter, And it directly led to Amnon's death because Absalom had to step in or felt he had to step in. So that's that's David's anger. Let's look at Absalom's anger. Anger can become an excuse for unwise and for sinful actions. So far as we know up to this point, Absalom was a man of character and promise. There's no record of rebellion or recklessness on Absalom's part prior to Amnon's uh, sin Uh, So now, uh, he is angry. Absalom is angry about what Amnon is doing. And nobody could blame him. Uh, His anger is appropriate and it's justified. His anger, so far as we know, was motivated by his brotherly love for Tamar. And perhaps it was even motivated by his father's lack of uh, action. But his anger, listen church, led him to do things that were also sinful, things that were unwise, destructive things that he had no authority to do. There were better and more appropriate ways for Absalom to deal with his anger. Uh, Namely, he could have gone to his dad and said, Dad, what are we gonna do about this? But he refuses and instead he kills the man. And his actions end up ruining his relationship with his father. We'll see over the next two weeks that the relationship between David and Absalom just continues to crumble. It throws the entire nation into peril. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. And ultimately Absalom's anger uh, expressed in the wrong way will end in his own death. Now let's look quickly at the anger of Amnon. And what we learn here is that anger can become a roadblock to repentance. Now, Amnon's anger is more complicated. Uh, and if you mix anger and hatred and regret and guilt together, you can come up with some pretty murky things. And I can't uh, psychoanalyze what was going on in Amnon's heart as he went from loving Uh, Tamar those are his words to hating and despising Tamar but I'll say this that his anger expressed in that hatred became a roadblock that made his repentance impossible Uh, he never repented And he didn't repent because he had this great anger in him, this hatred toward Tamar, I suppose. Maybe it was toward God or to David or uh, to to himself. But he had this anger at somebody, at some situation associated with this. And he is so angry. He's not soft-hearted. He doesn't hear from the Lord. And he never repents. When we have anger, whether it's because we've done something wrong or someone else has done something wrong, it is very easy for that anger to keep us away from God, to keep us from confessing sins, if that's needed, or if somebody has sinned against us, to keep us from running to God for for consolation, for For help I see this happens hundreds of times people become angry somebody has hurt them and that anger ends up driving them from God and that anger can end up being the greater problem than the problem that caused it to begin with and so what we see here is this uh, anger that's out of control can ruin a life it ruined the life of David of Absalom and of Amnon. So what I want to do is to shift gears just a little bit and see what the Bible says about how to deal with anger. If anger is so dangerous that it ruined these three men, anger and their response to it, then what should we do? What should we do when anger comes our way? So we're going to turn to the New Testament and I'll show you these verses on the screen, but I want us to look at to begin with, two verses from Ephesians 4, and then we'll read a little further. But I want to begin with verse 26 and 27. The Bible says, Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. So anger here is not, a, is not necessarily a sin. He says here, be angry. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. So from these verses, and a couple of more we'll read below here, I want you to see how it is that we can be angry in a godly way. Number one, turn your anger into action. Now, anger isn't a sin by itself, but anger can very quickly lead to sin. So it says here, be angry. You can be angry over the right things for the right reasons. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger is something that is prompting us to do one of three things. When we're angry, we either need to act. There's something we need to do about the problem. Or we need to trust that God's going to take care of the problem. Or we need to confess. You see that with these three men. David, when he was angry, he should have acted. Absalom, when he was angry, he should have trusted And Amnon, when he was angry, he should have confessed. So when anger wells up in us, we need to figure out which of those three things we need to do, and we should do it. We should do it immediately. You look at that last phrase in verse 26, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And oftentimes, we talk about that in the context of marriage, and we say, I've heard people say, that means don't go to bed mad. Well, that's probably good advice, uh, but I don't think that's what this passage is saying. I think what he's teaching us here is when you have anger, there is a ticking clock and you need to do something with that anger and you can't delay. You can't delay. David delayed and he didn't act. Absalom delayed and he didn't trust. Amnon delayed and he didn't repent. We must do something with our anger and do it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We must turn anger into action. Now the second thing we must do is we must evict anger's frenemy. Frenemy. I don't think I've ever used that word before, but I've heard it and I looked it up this week. A frenemy is someone who is sort of a friend and sort of an enemy. And so a frenemy would be someone that you invite into your life, but you know that they're going to cause you harm. Well, if you look at verse 27, Acts 4, 27, don't give the devil an opportunity. He says, be angry, don't sin, don't let the sun go down, deal with this quickly, or you're going to give the devil an opportunity. Very often our anger is an invitation to the devil. Angry and angry emotions and the devil go well together. They're friends but they're frenemies Because once the adversary has a beachhead in our lives once he has a seat at the table once he has a desk in the office Then he'll cause all all kinds of problems So what does 427 mean don't give the devil an opportunity? It's telling us that when we persist in anger, we continue to be angry. What we're doing is we're just unlocking the door for the adversary to come in. We're giving him carte blanche to come in and bring all kinds of problems into our lives. When we feel anger boiling up within us, we have to make a choice. Either at that point, we turn the steering wheel over to the Lord, or we turn the steering wheel over to the adversary. You're going to do one or the other. When you're angry, you're either going to invite the Lord to take over and you're going to act, trust, or confess, or you're going to give the steering wheel to the adversary and your anger is going to cause great problems. Well, number three, number three, disconnect anger from the tongue. So we're going to skip down just a few verses in Ephesians 4. Look at verse 31. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. There's a whole bunch of synonyms there for anger, bitterness, and wrath, and shouting, and slander. So we see here that there's a connection between anger and the words that we say, the slander that we say. Don't shout, he says here. Because when you connect anger to the tongue, what we're trying to do is disconnect anger from the tongue. But when you connect anger to the tongue, it is like gasoline and fire, it's going to cause a problem. Probably all of us could make a confession today of a time in our life when anger and our tongue have been connected and there has been an explosion and there was great regret. Anger and the tongue must be disconnected. Uh, Years ago, I read a book by Dale Carnegie. Do you know that name? If you've ever taken a business class or a leadership class, you've read this book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, The Library of Congress says it's the seventh most influential book in all of English history. Now, the best parts of the book are when it gives counsel that the Bible already gave. And so he plagiarized a little bit and copied the Bible in sections. Uh, and here's one of the things he said. It's a very wealthy man, one of the most successful business leaders in the history of the of the history, right? Dale Carnegie. He said, I decided early on I would never argue with anybody. What he said is, I will never connect my anger with my tongue. I just won't do it. And so he led all of these enterprises and all of these businesses with all of these employees and all of these uh, responsibilities. He said he never in all of his business life argued with anybody. And he credits that. He credits his success to that. Well, that's straight from scripture, right? We must not connect anger with the tongue, so some of you are wondering why I have rope up here. I'm not going to knock it in the floor. I learned the lesson <laughs> a few weeks ago. But I'll tell you the story. If uh, you've been in my, uh, my study, you've seen this rope. It's on my desk all the time. Um, people ask me why, why it's there. And I, I say I use it to handle problem people. And I do, but I'm not tying them up. Uh, two or three years ago, I was sharing with a wise friend and I don't even know what the problem was. I was mad at somebody about something and I was telling my friend about my anger because somebody said something or somebody had done something that angered me. And again, I don't even remember now what it, what it was. That probably tells you all you need to know about that. Um, but my friend said, uh, that my anger was not his fault or her fault. Uh, My anger was, was my fault. He said, what's happening is people are walking in your study or calling you on the phone or sending you a text message or an email and they're saying something and you don't like what they're saying. And so essentially what they're doing is they're throwing down a rope and they're wanting you to pick up the other end of the rope and play tug of war with them. And you are, and you're making yourself miserable and your, your heart rate is going up and you're exhausted and you're tugging and they're tugging and you're tugging and they're tugging. And his advice was this. He said, when somebody comes in and says something that makes you angry, consider that there may be good wisdom in that. He said, no, you mess up a lot. (laughs) And he's, He's right. He said, but just listen to what they say. Don't pick up the other end of the rope. Don't play tug of war. Don't connect your anger to your tongue. Just thank them for that information and go to the next thing and think about it tomorrow. And listen, that advice is so valuable because it's scripture's advice. We must not connect anger with our tongue. Now the final thing, very quickly, we must defang, defang anger with grace. So we've already seen how anger can open up the door to all kinds of problems. It can rob us of joy and peace. It can lead to all kinds of sin uh, as uh, the adversary has a head in our lives. It can destroy relationships and so on. So how do we take the danger out of anger? Well, look at verse 32. Look at the very next verse, Ephesians four thirty-two. Be kind and compassionate to one another. He's still talking about anger now. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God forgave you in Christ. So Paul says that the antidote to sinful anger is compassion and forgiveness. When somebody makes you angry, when somebody disappoints you, hurts you, disagrees with you, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, has that ever happened? When someone is rude to you in a customer service setting, when, when, when somebody is just plain unkind, he says in this verse, instead of becoming angry, we should have compassion and we should forgive them. Really, he says three things. In verse 32 be kind and compassionate to one another that's number one forgiving them forgiveness so compassion forgiveness because God in Christ forgave you let's look at those one at a time no, number one compassion when somebody makes you angry we should have compassion the best way to do that is to remember something I read in a book a long long time ago I don't even know what book but somebody said hurt people hurt people have you ever heard that before hurt people hurt people you know, if you're walking down the hallway and uh, I brush up against you, uh, that's, we just brushed up against each other, right? We didn't, it um, uh, didn't cause a problem. You're not injured. Uh, you wouldn't think another thing about it. But if you had some big laceration on your arm or you had just had surgery or something and I bump into you in the same way, well, then, wow, that hurts. Hurt people hurt people. We, we have to have some, uh, some, some issues, some hurts in order for us to experience other hurts and then for us to have the attitude that hurts other people. And so you brush against somebody in the hallway that has got some problem and it physically hurts them. They'll lash out to you and they'll hurt you because you hurt them because they were hurt. I don't know if that makes sense. We just should have compassion. Compassion. We should remember that people around us are going through all kinds of things that we don't know anything about. When that that cashier is not as attentive as he or she should be, consider that you may have shown up on the worst day of their year, right? When somebody doesn't show you the kindness or somebody's quick tempered, we need to start with compassion. Hurt people hurt people. Now, the second thing is forgiveness. Forgiveness always melts an angry heart. Uh, The problem with forgiveness is it's easier said than done, right? Somebody hurts you, you know you should forgive. You're believers, you're Christians. But it's hard. But the last part of this tells us how to do it. How to do it. It says, just as God also forgave you in Christ. When anger bubbles up within me because someone has said something or done something that has offended me, what I need to do is to remember my own failures. I need to remember how many times I've disappointed people and how many times I have let the Lord down. I need to remember all the times that I've failed to keep my commitments, all the times that I've been insensitive, all the times I've been selfish and self-centered. And how God in heaven through Christ has forgiven me of all of those things. And when I remember that, I'm able to extend extend some forgiveness to others. I'll share with just one more verse here. Proverbs 19, 11. God, good, sorry, good sense makes one slow to anger. And so if you get angry quickly, that verse says you're a dumb person, okay? Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. What does that mean? It is his glory. Anytime you see the word glory used in that way, uh, it means the best part of you. The, the best part of you. And so what this, what this passage is saying is that the best thing you can say about a man Is that he can forgive easily if you want to be a great man or woman here's here's how to do it according to the Bible be a man be a woman who can quickly forgive that's the glory of a man that's a true mark of greatness so now where's Jesus in all of this well anger anger is real Uh, The Bible doesn't condemn anger. The Bible condemns what we do with anger, but anger is real. And the greatest anger, this may surprise you, the greatest anger anywhere resides in the heart of God. The greatest anger, justified anger, the greatest anger resides in the heart of God. Now, there's some good news as well. The greatest compassion and the greatest love, also those things reside in the heart of God. Uh, The most famous sermon ever preached outside the Bible, people say, Jonathan Edwards' sermon in the 1930s. He preached uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, More people have heard about it than have actually read the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It sparked a revival, maybe in a lot of ways sparked the second great awakening. Uh, And it's based on Deuteronomy 32, 35. Let me read that verse. Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. In time their foot will slip, for their day of disaster is near, and their doom is coming quickly. And so basically it's a sermon that where Jonathan Edwards stood and said, every one of you are dangling over the pit of the fire of hell and you're about to go down into it. And, and people cried and screamed and, and, um, and there were some genuine uh, conversions. But I can give you the whole sermon in 20 seconds, okay? Here it is. When you die, you will either face... The anger and the wrath of God. And it's the greatest anger and wrath anywhere. When you die, you will either face the anger and the wrath of God. Or when you die, you will see that Jesus has already faced it for you on the cross. There's no greater anger than the anger in the heart of God because of our rebellion. But there's no greater love than that found in the heart of God and expressed in the ministry of Christ. And when we die, we will see the anger of God. We will either see it poured out on us or we will see that on our behalf it was poured out on Jesus. If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if there's never been a time in your life when you've recognized that you're hopelessly guilty of sin, today needs to be the day when you ask Christ to be your Lord and master. You trust what he's done on the cross as enough for you. You become a child of God. And then the great anger of God will have been absorbed by the sacrifice of Christ for you on the cross. Because the only other alternative is to face that great anger alone. In both services, let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I wanna pray, then there'll be people in the front who can help you make a decision today. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, I know that our sin and rebellion has created great anger in your heart but that anger finds compassion in your heart expressed through Jesus we're thankful for that I pray that we will trust what Christ has done for the forgiveness of sin and to absorb the anger and wrath of God that belongs to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together in both services and let's sing.